Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 88. When we picked the name for this podcast and platform, the term digital health was becoming more widely adopted as a way to differentiate between the older and more traditional practice of healthcare and the newer, more interactive and accessible products and services that were coming onto the market. For decades, the prefix digital has been used to describe clocks, watches, and cameras, and to apply it to health seemed a little inconsistent with the established norms and traditional expectations of a conservative and established industry. Now, rather than fading away, the term digital health is continuing to grow, with new subsets of products and services being grouped within it. Digital doctor's visits, digital clinical trials, digital therapeutics, and digital medicine are just some of the terms that have burst onto the scene. It's my job to bring you the insights from leaders and organizations around the world and to help signpost the opportunities, innovations, and resources that are available now and those that are emerging on the horizon. In this episode, we're taking on the topic of digital medicine, and my guest is Jen Goldsack. Jen Goldsack is the Interim Executive Director of the Dime Society, which is the new digital medicine society that's just been launched, and she's here to tell us more about that. Jen has a background in clinical trials, outcomes research, and innovation, and she holds master's degrees from the University of Oxford in England, the University of Pennsylvania, and an MBA from George Washington University. Jen is also a retired athlete. She's a Pan American Games champion, Olympian, and world championship silver medalist. She's a dual national with both British and American citizenship, and she currently resides in Florida. In this conversation, Jen and I explore what digital medicine is, how it sits alongside digital therapeutics and digital health, and explore what's needed to make the field of digital medicine stronger, smarter, and faster. I understand you're listening to this while you're driving, exercising, or doing something else, so don't worry. There's a lot of information. We've put together a quick download that highlights some of the key information we spoke about on this episode. You can download a copy of that by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 88. In fact, you can get all the notes, links, and other details from this conversation by visiting that page. Again, that's digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 88. And just a quick reminder, be sure to subscribe to and rate our podcast and use the sharing features of your podcast app to send this and your other favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. Now let's dive into the conversation with Jen Goldsack of the Dime Society. Jen, thanks for joining me and welcome to the program. Thanks, Dan. Thrilled to be here. Jen, you and I met at the CNS Summit in Boca Raton last year in November, and you were hobbling around because of a cycling accident. Have you fully recovered from that now? Um, I'm close. I'm still hobbling um, just without the crutches. It has been just over a year since my accident. And um, all I am is very grateful that I'm now close to making a full recovery after a, a really, really nasty accident indeed. But thanks for asking, Dan. You didn't let it hold you back at all at the summit. Was that your first time attending it? No, it wasn't. I think... Gosh, I think it was my third. It's absolutely one of my favorite conferences to go to. So uh, it certainly wasn't going to miss it. And in fact, that was my first work engagement after seven surgeries. So um, I was highly motivated and it was nice to be made to feel so welcome. 
Absolutely. It was the first time that I went to that meeting, and I'm definitely planning to go this year as well. It's the 10th anniversary of the CNS Summit, so I'm looking forward to attending that a second time for me and seeing a lot of the progress and how things are moving forward. Uh, Jen, I mentioned in the opening comments that you were an athlete and an Olympian. You rode for the U.S. and in the U.K., and I'm just curious, was there something you learned from being a professional athlete that you really apply in your professional career in healthcare? Dan, that's a really good question. There's many things. I feel very spoiled to have had the opportunity to compete at the Olympics and um, sort of take my sport and my competitive nature to the highest level. I think any athlete would tell you that for the period of time that you're an athlete, you wake up every day and you've put yourself under pressure. You have to be the best in the world, even if it's in practice. And the minute or the day that you're not is when you lose your medal. So bringing that kind of work ethic and also working smart, I think, to the professional world, you know, what are the biggest obstacles today? What is the greatest, you know, in the athlete's world, what's the greatest impediment to speed? Bringing that into the professional world, what's the greatest impediment to pursuing our goal? And not just working hard, but being smart in where you direct your efforts. I think any athlete would also tell you, you know, we spend years getting really comfortable being uncomfortable. That's uh, the job description. And so I think you often find athletes pushing the envelope in the professional space, being very comfortable, taking risks, doing things, having ideas, you know, not being afraid to fail. That's also part of practice when you're an athlete. But um, Dan, I feel really strongly that healthcare in some ways as an industry really helped me get through the challenges of retiring from being an athlete. You hear many stories of athletes who, you know, after competing on the greatest stage, never really make that transition and find the same kind of joy or happiness in subsequent careers. For me, I feel incredibly fortunate and privileged to be working in healthcare. The challenges we face, you know, you talk to the parent of a child with a rare disease for which there is no cure. You talk to individuals in some of the most developed countries in the world, some of the richest nations on earth, and they can't get access to simple care. And, you know, for me, motivation was never a struggle in transitioning. I feel very fortunate that I have an industry where we can collaborate and there are important solutions to be found. It's it's certainly very motivating. I would think that resilience persistence, that's just the sheer tenacity of being an athlete and all the micro decisions that you make on a daily basis being a professional athlete, I, I think that really would transpose well into the, mm -hmm. the healthcare realm where there's so many things that we have to decide to do and these very small steps that over time build up to, to make real change. But I want to start with the basics here. We're on talking about digital medicine. We've talked a lot on this program around digital health. We just recently had Megan Coder on talking about digital therapeutics. And now we're going to talk about digital medicine. Can you, first of all, just explain to me what that term means and how that sits within the overall sector of digital health and with this subset of digital therapeutics? Yeah, happy to do that. And I actually think you teed up the question really nicely. So we do consider digital medicine to be a subset of digital health. Um, and specifically, digital medicine, we associate with a really rigorous evidence base. So any software-based product, oftentimes it will come with a sort of hardware component, but, but software being the key, any software-based, evidence-based tool 
that supports the practice of medicine. So it's not just those digital therapeutics. And you asked about that and the conversations you've had with Megan previously. And the best way I can describe it is as concentric circles. So if you imagine digital health being a sort of very broad field, you know, that would include things like um, your wellness apps that perhaps don't have a rigorous evidence base, but yet we know individuals find them incredibly useful in managing their own health, for example, collecting information. Then within that, defined by evidence, a strong, robust sort of evidence platform, you have your digital medicine. And I think it's really important to think about what we mean by the practice of medicine. So we think of digital tools, digital medicine products as doing broadly two things. One, to intervene in human health. And I think that that's when you start to think specifically about these digital therapeutics products. Then the other piece would be digital tools that are used for measurement. And whether that's measurement to, you know, assess efficacy or safety during a clinical trial, or whether that's, you know, measurement after a patient is discharged from the hospital and they want to do remote monitoring, whether it's a full detection system, also diagnostics. So that's how we would define digital medicine evidence-based software digital products supporting the practice of medicine. And then within that, you have your digital therapeutic subset, which are those digital tools that actually intervene in human health. When I think about digital medicine, my mind automatically goes to Proteus. Proteus has been around since I think it was 2001. They're almost 20 years old. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars over their 18 years or so. But from what you just described, it doesn't sound like there has to be a pharmaceutical component to digital medicine? Is it is it with or without? You mentioned hardware, software, and evidence-based. Pharma included? Pharma's absolutely included. It's simply not a requirement. I think that there will certainly be those sorts of combination products. Um, certainly what Proteus did with Abilify, for example, is a terrific example. However, it's not necessary. I think it's really exciting to see the emergence of some software-based interventions for the treatment of um, PTSD, for example. There's no sort of pharmaceutical-based component. That would be a pure sort of digital therapeutic. But then, you know, another great example, and I think this will change many lives, is the example of the artificial pancreas, where you have your continuous glucose monitor, which is connected to software algorithms. It's making decisions about automatically providing insulin through an insulin pump. However, it's a fully closed loop system with no human intervention. So obviously, the insulin is itself not a digital therapeutic. And that would be an example of a, a combination product. And I think those will be very powerful. But we see digital medicine as anything that software touches that's supporting the practice of medicine with and without those pharmaceutical products. I was actually just going to ask you next if you can think of any examples or give us any examples about companies or products or use cases. You just listed several there. Any other companies or particular things that listeners should be tuned into and, and keep aware of in terms of companies and products that are out there? It's a challenging question. You know, I could fill 20 minutes sort of reeling them off. Um, and the reason being is I, there was a, a study out right at the end of last year, so right at the end of 2018, that sort of speculated that by 2023, the digital health market or the digital medicine market is projected to be $224 billion. So we aren't talking just about a handful of companies here. I think we can consider things like at one end of the spectrum, work that Verily is doing. 
their baseline study. So that's population health. Apple is another giant. They've come out with their an FDA approved product for detecting AFib. But let's also think about other companies. For example, a small biotech using some kind of digital or software-based measure in a clinical trial of a biologic. To us, that's digital medicine. You could imagine an innovative orthopedic surgeon discharging you know, their knee replacement patients from the hospital with some kind of sensor that looks at range of movement in their new knee. You could look at it as a hulking great health system that makes as standard putting a little patch on every cardiac patient that's discharged, putting that on their chest and doing really good remote monitoring to make sure that they don't have an event afterwards, they have good follow-up care, that they don't face increased rates of 30-day readmissions. I think we need to insist upon the evidence-based and we need to be very specific and intentional with how we define digital medicine, but that certainly doesn't mean it's a narrow field. Those are some great examples that you gave there. And just one thing I want to mention, because one of the friends of the show is Professor Stefan Obini at UCSF, and he runs the DocSF meeting. And one of the examples you just listed with orthopedic surgery is one of the things I know he's researched quite a lot. And uh, and actually, we're going to have him on the program again shortly. He was a guest many episodes ago. Uh, we'll have him back on to talk about some of the research he's he's done into the use of sensors in orthopedics for prehab and post-surgical rehabilitation. So mm-hmm. uh, some great examples there. Now, when we think Think about medicine generally, healthcare generally, we automatically think about doctors and nurses. But with the way that you've described this whole sector of digital medicine, it really sounds like it has a much larger group of stakeholders. Who really is responsible for the practice of digital medicine? It's a really good question. Um, so I think the first thing that's really important to note, there was a terrific op-ed that was published in Nature Digital Medicine by the Scripps team. And I think the title or, or the leading sentence was something along the lines of digital medicine on its way to being just medicine. And I certainly don't think that these digital tools are going to usurp all of the pharmaceutical choices that we have great options for care, but I do think they will support them and ultimately be fully integrated with them. So I think we need to keep at the center the physicians, pharmacists, nurses, physios, um, therapists who currently sort of practice medicine. But you're exactly right. There's a huge sort of additional pool of expertise. Digital medicine, I think, is one of the most diverse fields I can think of. To really make it work, we need everyone to be at the table from regulators to white hat hackers, from ethicists to engineers, from clinicians to citizen scientists. I think that, and I feel very strongly, in fact, that really to reap the full benefits that I believe digital medicine offer, all of those participants need to be actively engaged and collaborating. Yeah, I'm just thinking of all the different sorts of roles that are responsible for making these solutions happen. I mean, from user experience researchers and designers to graphic interface designers, even to sound uh, engineers. I mean, when you mm-hmm. have that nice sort of sound when you swipe or when you click on something, that can help people understand software and solutions. And these are all little things that can be little nudges and rewards and pushes to get people to do the things that we want them to do through these new tools. So aside from professionals who are working in this space, are there other stakeholders in digital medicine? I think the stakeholder that's worth emphasizing here are the patients. And I think that digital tools and digital medicine offer not only great promise to patients, I think in terms of access to care, reduced burden of care, cost of care, all of these sorts of things are hugely important to patients. And frankly, these are things that we've been pursuing as an industry for years. And and I am optimistic about digital tools really helping meaningfully address some of these challenges. 
But I also think we need to consider patients as more active participants thanks to these digital tools. I think at the far end of that spectrum, we'd have our citizen scientists, you know, folks who really are actively perhaps collaborating as part of online patient groups to amass information, for example, but also just the patient as being sort of better informed and more empowered than ever. And seeing that as a real opportunity and something to be fostered and embraced and taken very seriously indeed. Yeah. And, and as more patients are getting involved with this and, and are discovering and using new tools, the care is delivered outside of uh, the traditional environments for healthcare. And I'd also put carers in with that as well, because obviously patients often have people that they rely on, whether they're parents or adult children or spouses or partners, or even professional carers that mm -hmm. are working in their homes to help these new tools be effective. So I mentioned Proteus earlier. You mentioned a bunch of different companies and solutions that are being developed, but we're still quite a long way from these tools being really mainstream. You mentioned the article talking about digital medicine becoming just medicine. I talk about that with digital health. Just one day, it will stop being digital health. It'll just be the way that we're doing health and healthcare. In order to make that transition, I understand you've identified three primary challenges that need to be addressed. So can we talk about those three challenges and sort of walk me through what they are? Certainly. So the primary challenge, and this is why we insist on evidence as being part of the definition of digital medicine, is frankly a lack of evidence right now. And I think that that comes in a couple of different flavors. I think it's challenging for prescribing clinicians and for the patients themselves to really distinguish between those digital tools that have been proven safe and critically important, effective. You know, how can you discern? I mean, you just go to the app store and it's just overwhelmed by, you know, health apps. And how can you be discerning about which of these products are, are truly beneficial and safe? And I also think that that evidence is not just about the end users, although, of course, they are paramount. I think it's also challenging for our regulatory colleagues and for the payers. You know, it's a whole different model of product. How do you think about reimbursing for this? You know, when there is no clinic visit involved, how do you think about that pricing structure, that reimbursement structure? You know, and frankly, that's critical to advancing the field because then needs to be a business framework for it to stand upon in order to deliver the clinical outcomes. And the same for our regulatory colleagues. I have been so impressed by you know, regulators really being sort of open that they want to learn with us, being extraordinarily collaborative. Um, but we all need to come together as quickly as possible to define an evidence base for evaluating these tools. I'm speaking with Jen Goldsack of the Dime Society. We'll be right back after this word from one of our sponsors. Jen, before the break, you were telling us about the three primary challenges that need to be addressed to accelerate digital medicine in the market. Lack of evidence was the first of those three things. What are the other two challenges? Yep. So the other big challenges, I think, would be the, I want to say fragmentation. And I think that sounds incredibly critical and it's not intended to be. It's not that the field is broken. It's that the field is brand new. And as we were talking about previously, Dan, it requires that cross-disciplinary collaboration, the likes of which I just, I, I've, I've never seen before in another industry. And I'll give you a very specific example or, or a few of where the challenges lie in that. First of all, you know, where do you find your colleagues to collaborate with. But also, you know, there's no standard lexicon for the field. When an engineer comes to the table and a clinician comes to the table and they start talking about validation, 
in their individual disciplines, the definitions of that term are vastly different. So it's challenging even to have that sort of conversation around the appropriate evidence base, around the the validation process, because it means different things to different people. There is no common language. And in addition, no, no sort of technical standards. And then you think about brilliant data scientists and engineers for the first time handling healthcare data, patient data. You know, that's something those of us who are sort of dragged up on the clinical side understand. We understand the regulations and the respect for, you know, that kind of data. That's something we need to get our colleagues comfortable with. They can absolutely do it. It's just new. And so I think that that fragmentation, that lack of alignment in terminology and thinking and standards and approaches is something that's frankly holding the field back right now. I agree entirely. The point you raised around the fragmentation and the fact that it's such a new area, we think about drugs interacting. The same thing can be true with these digital tools, right? In terms of the interactions between the digital therapeutics we might be taking or the digital medicines. And then how do we also create a better environment for the users, both on the clinical side and the patient side, so that they don't have to log in multiple times for some of these tools and they can have some consistency and interaction of data. So yeah, I see that fragmentation is something that we're beginning to encounter as these new tools are developed. And then we need to come up with some standardization and some tools about how to uh, make these things work together more quickly. And what's the third challenge that you've identified? It's uh, very closely aligned to what you were just saying, Dan. I think it's not just the sort of the fragmentation and the lack of alignment. I also think that progress is very much being made sort of in silos. And whether that's, you know, let's stop for a second and just reflect on how broadly we define the industry, right? How are we making sure that those learnings are propagated across the field and shared? What we don't want is, you know, a very innovative and determined team running ahead with a set of technical standards that couldn't be extrapolated or extended to other areas of the field. That's the sort of thing that actually could be two steps forward and and a step back. So, you know, it's really making sure that the successes we have and frankly, the challenges and lessons learned from previous experience are appropriately disseminated across the field. And I think that's really important. And again, because of the breadth of the field and because of the incredibly sort of diverse disciplines that we're bringing to the table, that's a challenge. So three primary challenges, just to review them, we've got lack of evidence, we've got fragmentation and silos of of progress being created. You've created a group called the DIME Society. DIME stands for Digital Medicine. Can you tell me about that organization and the purpose and the mission about what you're doing there? Absolutely. So the Digital Medicine Society, or DIME, is a professional society to support these experts at the intersection of global healthcare and also technology. Ultimately, it's all in pursuit of advancing human health. On the one hand, when we all started talking about this idea, you know, I'm not sure the world needs another professional society. There are plenty of them, and many of them have been around for a long time. But, you know, those challenges that we were just discussing, that lack of evidence, that fragmentation and lack of alignment, those isolated silos of progress, we do think that there needs to be a large disinterested body really focused on bringing these experts together, supporting the development of an evidence base, supporting interdisciplinary collaboration 
innovation, conversations, the emergence of best practices and standards, ethics, taking a, a serious role about educating different disciplines about the needs of their colleagues with different backgrounds. And so we did launch the Digital Medicine Society. And, and the purpose of the society is not a society for a society's sake. We really see the purpose of our organization and frankly, you know, the members who join us as united, uniting in trying to ensure that digital medicine is able to quickly um, fulfill all of the many promises I think it holds to sort of patients and their caregivers. Now, you mentioned that there are a lot of other societies that have been around for a long time, and certainly everyone knows that's true, but they tend to be very focused in terms of the professionals that are involved with those different societies. And as we talked about earlier, digital medicine requires professionals from a wide group mm -hmm. of professions. So who is who's this really for? Who's the Dime Society really for? Dan, it's everyone we talked about previously on the podcast. And I think that this is something the society has to do well in order to be effective. It's really important to us that we are welcoming, you know, those data security experts, you know, your white hat hackers. We also need our government colleagues, our regulatory colleagues. We need clinicians at the table telling us about how these tools integrate into their work and what they need to see to feel comfortable using these tools with their patients. You know, those patients, those carers, those citizen scientists, you know, we need mathematicians, we need hardware engineers software engineers, payers. And, you know, going back to the beginning of the discussion where we were defining digital medicine and we see digital therapeutics as a critically important subset of digital medicine. You also mentioned Megan Coder, who's the executive director of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. She's on our strategic advisory board. We see this as a truly sort of collaborative effort. And while the Alliance is a trade organization serving the organizations, the businesses that are developing these therapeutics, we really want to provide a professional home, a common identity, a sort of collaboration clearinghouse for all of the individuals who work in digital medicine. And I'll give you one example of why I think that's really important. You can imagine, you know, a recently graduated whiz kid engineer wanting to understand how they can make a difference to healthcare. You know, we want to help them quickly understand the highly regulated environment of healthcare. We want to give them the connections they might need to make that transition. And we want to support the clinicians trying to find these software experts to collaborate it's all in pursuit of patients, their health, their health outcomes, and health economics too for society. But the vehicle and the approach that we've chosen as a society is to try and solve these very specific problems by supporting the experts working within the field. So data scientists, cybersecurity experts, people from across the medical spectrum, from nurses and doctors, all sorts of specialists within that, scientific researchers, drug development uh, professionals, all these sorts of groups are welcome into this society. Is that right? They absolutely are, Dan. Where do they go to find out more about it? And what sorts of things are you offering to people who are interested in joining? So I'm excited to share that we launched on May 14th, 2019. So I would encourage folks to go to our website, dimesociety.org. And that's where there's opportunity to join us. If you're excited about this mission, you want to participate with us in um, sort of defining and building the field of digital medicine. Um, and in terms of what we offer, I'm excited to share that there's a lot even for a new society from, you know, simple things that you might expect from a membership society like discounts with our partner organizations. There's also really importantly opportunities to influence the research program. So members can suggest research topics and they also help us select those that we identify as priorities. 
participate in working groups, actually developing the evidence, responding to some of these needs for new information, overcoming some of those challenges. Um, We have Career Center, we have a Knowledge Hub. Um, We also have opportunities for informal conversations, collaborations, oftentimes using digital tools. And that's one of the nice things about being sort of a new uh, tech-focused society is, you know, there's a lot of different vehicles we have in there for folks to make those connections and have those conversations. And I imagine we've talked about Megan a couple of times here, but one of the things that Digital Therapeutics Alliance has done is they've actually issued sort of an industry definition for what a digital therapeutic is. I imagine you guys will also be assisting the industry by providing a, a clear definition about what digital medicine is. Is that right? That's exactly right. So our small group of co-founders were delighted that we are able to build two extraordinary boards of experts. So we have a strategic advisory board and a scientific leadership board. All of those are incredibly diverse with folks from all of the backgrounds that we believe comprise digital medicine. And before we launched, we actually took the time, we held back, we really wanted a rigorous definition. Um, We wanted to be deliberate and intentional in how we defined digital medicine. And so folks will find that on the website. We feel strongly that it may evolve over time, but for now we think it's a terrific definition and hopefully something that will unite the field and get folks excited to come work with us. The website is dimesociety.org. Is there an email address that they can contact? Absolutely. And in fact, I'm happy to provide my own. It's it's a collaborative society. So uh, folks can get in touch with me directly at jennifer at dimesociety.org. Well, Jen, listen, I really appreciate you coming on the program and sharing what you're working on there. I think it is definitely needed. It is uh, something that I'm sure you'll have a lot of success with. And I hope you'll come back and keep us posted on your progress. Dan, I think we had a great conversation. I'm thrilled to have been able to, to chat with you and to have the opportunity to let your listeners know about Dime. That was Jen Goldsack, Interim Executive Director for the Dime Society. You can find their website at dimesociety.org. And of course, you can find that link as well as the notes from our conversation by visiting the post on our website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 88. Don't forget to grab that download from our website as well. Again, you can find all that information at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 88. While you're tapping on your phone, please take a moment to give us a quick review on iTunes. Many thanks to Rebecca, hashtag health, for your recent review and kind words, and also to Dr. Samir Barry. Samir recently launched his own podcast called Impossible Healthcare, and he's doing great work, and I encourage you to check out his podcast as well. It's called Impossible Healthcare. Search for that on iTunes. I'm sure you'll find it. You can also contact me with any suggestions or requests. You can find me on email at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com or on Twitter at healthtechdan. As always, thank you for being a part of the community and doing your part to push the industry forward. And of course, many thanks to our sponsors for supporting our work here. I'll speak with you soon in episode 89. And until next time, keep on innovating.